country roses, blessed songs. Mommy's here, daddy's gone. Broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry. Hello, and welcome to Movies with Gravy, a podcast in three acts where we discuss an under-the-radar new release and the films we believe inspired it. My name is Billy Ray Bruton, and I am your host and antagonist for the next 90 minutes. Joining us today is a freelance film critic who has contributed to Reverse Shot, Movie, and Criterion, and is the co-author of the upcoming book, Corpses, Fools, and Monsters, An Examination of Transgender Cinema. His pronouns might be he, him, his, but his adjectives are badass and awesome. Mr. (laughs) Caden Mark Gardner. Caden, you're here! Thank you for inviting me on. Great to be on this episode. Super glad to have you here. Um, Before we get started, I I just wanted to talk to you a second about the book, which you have, which I assume you're writing right now. Is that correct? Yeah. So while we've, me and my co-author, Willow McClay, have sort of promoted that we've been working on this, honestly, since about 2018, I believe, uh, we've been mostly focusing on the research and trying to pull the titles that we would want and believe would fit in a book then it became a process of finding uh, a publisher which we have now so now we're working on our draft at this moment how many different films are covered in the book oh my god several because while we are concentrating a lot on movies that feature trans images prominently some of the ways trans image film images are used can sometimes just be a sort of uh, blink and you miss it sort of way that sometimes movies use either sometimes for a sight gag or that it just becomes sort of an ornament of something else that a movie of a bigger movie that isn't necessarily concentrating on trans images. So we kind of focus we're we're focusing on like some of the big ones kind of like um the psycho legacy uh you know that sort of birth silence of the lambs dress to kill sleepaway camp but also stuff that is kind of like labeled b movie or exploitation movie like leonard glenda and other movies after that and sort of the more respectability films like boys don't cry the danish girl and all that and sort of see how anything has progressed since progressed since then or are we running into the sort of same sort of recycled tropes and all that i'm curious is there any part devoted to tu wong fu thanks for everything julie newmar honestly like it's actually like i while i think people would call that more of a drag movie like sure what like in my research like it's popped it popped up prominently in the 90s because i do believe the trans community thought that there was maybe sort of a moment to seize upon, and they thought that it was cool that these major actors were doing these roles and for a comedy, and it wasn't necessarily with these characters as a joke. But like, it's definitely, it's definitely something that's that kind of belongs in sort of the '90s sort of phase of where this, the amount of trans characters cross-dressing characters gender bending like it's there was something definitely in the air and i do believe that movie would come up in some context 
Yeah, I, I remember it, and I believe it was Priscilla that came out pretty pretty close together. And I'm sure Priscilla yeah. was first. And I, I'm guessing Tu Wong Fu was just trying to jump on that bandwagon as best they could. I mean, yeah, like who wouldn't want to go on sort of a road trip movie with those characters? Those characters. So, yeah, you definitely sort of saw Hollywood sort of see the success of like a little Australian indie movie that could and how they could seize upon having like bigger actors, bigger names and similar enough roles. So, yeah, Uh, again, like. I think now the 90s are looked at with a mixed legacy because I'm not really sure uh, everybody likes the crying game necessarily, <laughs> particularly how the twist was used and promoted upon in <clears throat> in major media or at the Academy Awards. But at that time, it was actually something where it's like, well, maybe we can, the for the trans community, it was like, maybe we can improve upon this maybe this can be something that can show that movies that are kind of about our lives can make money and maybe more of our stories can be told now they they hit walls as far as being able to have more of their stories and a lot of the times it turned into sort of salacious stories or stories that unfortunately it involved people dying, so there was struggles in that, but I could definitely understand during that time that people could in the trans community could be excited at that moment. Yeah. Uh, when do you think folks will be able to check out the book? When do you think it'll be all wrapped up and ready to go? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I think maybe 2023 might be the better day because I believe there might be a lot of back and forth uh, after after finishing things up. So I would let, I would think 2023, but who knows? Nothing's guaranteed. But again, we have a publisher and we had agreed upon sort of deadlines. So we're going to focus on that. Well, yeah, that's exciting. Um, so something else I wanted to touch on before we dive in is uh, – this week, actually just a couple of days ago, we lost the great Christopher Plummer, um, mm-hmm. an, an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. And um, he's he's been he's been a favorite of mine for a long time. And, you know, I, I probably, you know, he's been around forever. And I remember him primarily from films when I was a kid, like Dolores Claiborne and, you know, Star Trek Six and, and stuff like that. But it probably wasn't, I probably didn't really start appreciating him as much as I did until Beginners came out. Uh, which was, I think, kind of his introduction to a new audience. And, you know, and not, you know, not only because he was playing a gay character, but because, you, you know, it was just a very, I thought, a very well-made movie. I'm curious, what is your relationship with Christopher Plummer, if you even have one? So I do have one because, like, my parents come from a generation in which straight people loved musicals. They loved the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. So I watch The Sound of Music a lot as a child, so he'll always be Captain Von Trapp to me in that way. Um, But yeah, I always sort of had him as a film presence. I wasn't really aware of the amount of titles he's been in over the years. Like, I recently uh, watched a movie he was in called The Silent Partner, in which he plays uh, the villain, who's honestly very sort of gay, even though he's 
with a bunch of women, there's something very sort of gay and genderqueer about his character that I found very fascinating. And, uh, but yeah, I definitely returned to him when he was in both Beginners and as uh, the patriarch in uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Fincher version. Mm-hmm. And sort of seeing him as kind of, he kind of had this air of sort of old Hollywood and he sort of brought that sort of class to uh, his later roles in a way, because uh, I definitely thought he deserved to win in for Beginners. And honestly, I was shocked that for many decades he was without an Oscar nomination until he played Tolstoy in that movie. I do not know the title off of the, the top last of my- the last station. Yeah. So that was like his first and he ended up getting free very later in life, which I find fascinating. I was shocked he wasn't nominated uh, for Sound of Music. But yeah, and um, I also uh, got into sort of Michael Mann in my 20s. So like him as a real-life journalist, Mike Wallace in The Insider was also very fascinating. Fascinating because like he's he's nothing like Mike Wallace in real life, but he sort of plays this perfect role of sort of somebody who you have a lot of ambivalence towards as far as the way in which he had some power and some say and didn't necessarily do all the right things in that movie. So I definitely a very sort of valuable sort of actor and screen presence. Well, and it was, it was interesting. I I read something. I, I think his wife released a statement or it was his agent who released a statement via his wife, which said that at the time he passed away, he was in the thick of rehearsals for playing King Lear in a film. Oh, wow. So he was going at it right till the end. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually noticing it did seem like he was still working and um, he still was like doing plays and plays, plays. And um, also seeing that he was obviously Canadian born, but he immediately got into Hollywood, but Hollywood by way of um, those sort of teleplays. That used to play in the 50s, like uh, Playhouse 90, General Electric Theater, that sort of stuff to sort of get into the industry. And, you know, again, like that sort of golden age of Hollywood and sort of being part of that generation, like that's sort of disappearing. So it's sad to think that that generation of actor is slowly sort of dissipating from uh, our current Hollywood, but it's great to see that he was able to still be able to work as much as he did and and get a sort of better late than never sort of honors for his work yeah absolutely well rest in peace christopher Plummer, and you know what rest in peace hal holbrook who also died recently as well oh yes Um, that mr dixie carter in my eyes because i love watching uh designing women reruns so he he appeared on that he is Mr. Dixie Carter in my eyes as well, even though uh, the Golden the Golden Girls is my heart and soul. So I have a weird relationship to Designing Women. Yeah, Designing Women and uh, the Golden Girls used to play back-to-back on Lifetime, so that's how I got introduced to both of those shows as yeah. like a teen. Yeah, I, I'm, an old, I'm an old man and remember watching Golden Girls episodes live when they were oh my airing. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... None of that is what we are here to talk about today. We are here to talk about the movie Cowboys, Mm -hmm. um, which I believe you got, I believe you saw, were were you screening for Outfest? Is that what you said? 
So I was part, I was uh, chosen by the very generous, nice programmers at Outfest to be a juror on the narratives side of things for Outfest. Um, it was me, a director, and uh, somebody who works uh, for acquisitions with uh, Neon were the sort of free member jury. So yeah, I saw Cowboys through that context. Yeah. yeah and i saw it i saw it also through the outfit outfest prism but as you know just someone checking out a film and saying oh i'll check that out um so um before we get into it uh let's play a clip from the film i'm pretty sure mom's a witch your mom is not a witch she doesn't understand you yet you're a tomboy you don't want to wear dresses anymore tomboy's just another type of girl but i'm not a girl I'm sorry, I don't follow you. I'm in the wrong body, okay? I'm a boy! Did you hear what I just said about Joe? She said that she is a boy. You messed her up. I think it's best that you stay away. You've got one body, you've got one path, and God's got the game plan. I can't stay here. You really want to go with me? I'll be back. Be ready. All successful films are about change to some degree, meaning we need to see the characters undergo some sort of change in order to feel the most minute level of narrative fulfillment. And Cowboys is a film all about change. Uh, Sasha Knight stars as Joe, whom we first meet as a boy embarking on a journey from Montana to Canada with his father, Troy, played by Steve Zahn. As the film unfolds, we learn more about why they're on this journey and the events leading up to their departure, consisting of flashbacks and tangential story involving Joe's mom, Sally, played by Jillian Bell, back when Joe, in his parents' eyes, was a little girl. Ann Dowd co-stars as a local detective trying to bring back both father and son safely as our three main characters, <laughs> Joe, Troy, and Sally, come to terms with their circumstances. So I'm going to start out with a question for you. Uh... Does writer-director Anna Kerrigan tackle this oftentimes botched subject matter with the sensitivity and thoughtfulness it deserves, or is Cowboys just another amongst the plethora of films about trans issues that misses the mark? So I would say, like, it is definitely a very sort of sensitive uh, portrait of a trans youth. Uh, <clears throat> I remember watching it, and um, it was not the only trans film uh, that I watched as a jury member, but I found that that other movie that it was comp technically competing against in narratives to be lacking in sort of the trans character in that other movie, uh, that trans character almost felt lost in the story, in the story. It was not enough about that character, in my opinion, whereas obviously this is definitely Joe's story and also sort of a story of sort of budding relationship with a uh, father and a son. So I think there is uh, the needed sensitivity in this movie as far as showing how the ways in which uh, a trans male character or a trans masculine character has to kind of deal with sort of the fallouts of coming to this conclusion about their gender identity and how it impacts the parents in their sort of gender terms. Like, 
we obviously see that Steve Zahn's character is more is uh, more supportive, albeit not necessarily in the most helpful of ways or ways that can easily just sort of bring a resolution a lot quicker than it does in the movie. But we also see how the mother sort of has a negative reaction reaction and it sort of becomes an issue of her coming to term coming to terms at a slower pace than the father and to me that is a very sort of true to life as somebody who is trans masculine and sort of has to and sort of had to deal with the fact that uh the women in my life actually had a much harder time than i the men in my life when i came out so I definitely think there is this sort of sensitivity of sort of bringing a sort of trans-masculine story because while I focus on trans stories, both trans-feminine, trans-masculine, and non-binary, there are sort of more nuances that each of those sort of experiences have to be told as, like trans trans men experience the worlds differently than trans women and vice versa. So I definitely do think this movie did sort of bring this topic up and did so in a sensitive way, especially for somebody young. We don't, <clears throat> we don't, we haven't really experienced a lot of sort of trans movies about trans youth. So I thought that was also important. And I thought this movie was definitely sensitive at times at times, but also sometimes I do wonder if it was perhaps playing a little too safe at certain moments, but still I do respect what it was trying to do. Yeah, I, I had the same thoughts about it in terms of maybe playing safe at certain moments, but I will say what was, what was interesting to me, and you just touched on it some, was I'm not used to seeing, even though even though what you said from, from my you know knowledge and, and the friends that I have that are trans, um, particularly transmasculine, um, it's, it's been similar circumstances where the women in their life have had a more difficult time accepting it. And it was interesting knowing that that's out there to see, because you don't see a lot of uh, you know trans films where the father is the accepting parental force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the mother. The mother comes around quicker or comes around immediately. And the father either comes around at the very end or not at all. And so seeing that sort of turned on its head was really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and, um, cause I'm just not used to it. Yeah. Cause like some, the common sort of trans stories that we see, even not necessarily sort of the dramatized film versions, but we see it every day of sort of somebody gets kicked out of their house and it's the issue seems to be that the father is the one who is, who has sort of rejected the trans person in that case. So it was in, so I did like seeing that the father was sort of the, the supportive force, albeit he, to call him the sort of patriarch of the families <laughs> being generous, like he has his own issues, but you know, he's obviously a supportive force, supportive force, but he has his own set of baggage, baggage, but it, it sort of did bring, this sort of tension and sort of human 
quality to it because obviously if it was just an issue of the patriarch overruling the mother in that case this movie would be like 10 minutes long so i get that <laughs> yeah and and you know i think all i think that also all of that is helped by the fact that i mean steve zahn is sort of the perfect actor for this role mm-hmm. uh, he is so able to sort of play both that sort of like almost childlike excitement and enthusiasm for being a father, but then also mm-hmm. play that hysterical mania of we, we never really learn necessarily what he's taking his pills for. I mean, my assumption was it's some sort of bipolar disorder or, or mood disorder or something along those lines, but we never really get that answer. I don't think, <clears throat> but he's so good at sort of straddling that line. And I just, I, I think this is his strongest performance, at least that I've seen. Yeah, I I I've always liked Steve Zahn. I always thought he was like always a good character actor, and he would always bring it to whatever movie it was, whether whether it was like something like that thing you do or something that you'd find on the straight to video five dollar movie pile at like a Target or something like that. Like I've always liked him because he always feels like he brings it to everything, and I really sort of liked. And you're right, he has a very sort of childlike quality to him. And I sort of think about this uh, line in a Beach Boys song called Child is the Father to the Man. Uh, yeah. And I sort of think about him and Joe's relationship because uh, in a way, the movie is kind of sort of subverting a lot of the sort of expectations. You, Because for many years, uh, being labeled trans or having... And it having sort of a dysphoria relating to gender identity put you as somebody who had a mental disorder. So the common trope with being trans alone would have you be seen as crazy. And while obviously the movie is is very sort of not uh, direct as far as what uh, Steve Zahn's problems are, he's the one who is the one who is un- is unstable is unstable or there's a tension about him not being the most stable whereas joe i think you feel like he is very self-assured or and very emotionally intelligent for a kid his age yeah that was that was interesting that was interesting as well um uh, because once once joe does uh, sort of you know talk to his father in the truck from that moment on you do get this sense of like that you know, Joe does have complete confidence in in who he is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that he's, yeah, he's figured he's figured it out. He's figured it out, and now it's just you know straight ahead. Let's go forward. And um, yeah, this the 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 Steve Zahn character was was really interesting, especially that relationship with Joe, and and particularly the ways it does play on sort of those, I guess those sort of cinematic masculine stereotypes of what a father and son should be and do. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me too, and and you mentioned this earlier, which was this plays into the whole idea of like you know trans masculine folks and and women being more accepting is, I wonder if it's because deep down, and I'm coming from a little bit of personal experience because when I was when I was still in my mother's womb, they initially thought I was going to be a girl, and uh, my father didn't want a little girl, so he was like, well, if it's a girl, we'll give it away. Oh my god! And, yeah, and so uh-huh. but if I turned out to be a little boy. But I wonder if it's because deep down, I mean, all men want sons. And so mm-hmm. e- even if even if they had, you know, what they perceived to be a daughter, 
and that daughter transition, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, and realizes mm-hmm. that they're actually a boy. If that's sort of like deep down, sort of a dream come true for a dad. <laughs> yeah. In a way, my, uh, my dad always kind of knew because I used to, I used to heavily socialize with boys when I was really young. I was always interested in boy things. I was into sports. I'm still into sports. Um, I liked, <clears throat> I liked uh, watching the movies he watched, and that, <clears throat> and that I I was I'm the oldest child, so I think he already kind of had a very sort of we already have a, had a connection. But he did say it's like, well. In a way, I always saw you as my son because you were always kind of acting in a sort of way that made me think you were very similar to the sons my friends had. So, yeah, I think uh, men men are open to the fact that they have gained a son. They haven't lost anyone. They, they gained a son or... And <clears throat> I think a lot of times parents only later on really reveal that there's like, I was on to you. And the fact that you were kind of behaving in ways that weren't necessarily the gendered norms of where you were assigned at birth. Like I was never really, I was never really feminine. And when I tried, I always hated it. And I tried for a while, but again, I think there was a part of me that always rejected that. And and I think in a way you also see that with mothers when they find out that uh, sons that they birthed have transitioned into women and they always feel like, oh, they're gaining a daughter. So there's always that kind of, that kind of, um, that kind of sort of uh, issue that can pop up when a child transitions and uh, and how <clears throat> and how parents can take it a little harder. And I can only imagine now with all these gender reveal parties, <laughs> it's like there's going to be more more of this. And I'm like, well, uh, if this kid comes out as trans, are you still are you going to do another gender reveal party to celebrate their their gender identity? Like, I don't understand this phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, ev- and here in California, it evidently starts forest fires. Oh, my God. Yeah, when I found that out, I was just like, 2020, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a year. Um, maybe maybe you'll know the answer to this. Um, Sasha Knight, who, who plays Joe, I'm not sure uh, it was... Uh, Trans or non-binary? Do you know offhand? I swore that I saw his ins- uh, the Instagram page that he went by male pronouns because I think uh, Sasha's parents run uh, their Instagram page, obviously, because he's super young. Yeah. So I do think he... <clears throat> I think he has male pronouns, and, and I do think he's... So I do think he's trans. If he's not, I'm sorely mistaken. So maybe we should just stick to they pronouns in that case as sort of a default uh, in this yeah. case. But I, I swore I recalled that uh, that he uh, that 
uh, Sasha goes by male pronouns. Okay, I'm seeing here on the Wikipedia that it says that it doesn't say it doesn't say non-binary or trans. It just says the director was always going to cast a non-binary or trans actor to play Joe. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no answer there. But anyway, I, it, but that's part of what I liked about the film too, is because if this movie had been made ten years ago, they would have just cast a straight actor. Like, yeah, a, they, a, they would, yeah, they would have probably cast a sort of tomboy girl. In yeah, case. yeah, and so it's it's nice it's nice to the point where we are seeing you know you know actual representation on screen, um, you know, which we have for a little while now, but. It, you know that that that's actually happening is great because ten years ago, you know, it would have been Hillary Swank. Um, oh yes, or, with or a with a terrible crew cut, yeah. <laughs> with a ter- with a terrible crew cut. Um, I, the, a couple of the issues I did have with the film kind of all relate to what you said earlier, which, but you know, I do think that this to me is such a unique story in the way it's kind of subverting our expectations. But I think it's a little marred by a kind of pedestrian script mm-hmm. um, yeah. particularly like did we need the Ann Dowd character I don't think we needed the Ann Dowd character I mean she really is only there I mean I love Ann Dowd God bless her mm-hmm. but she's really only there for like a couple of like little not even non reveals at the beginning and she's kind of an ineffective presence at the end and I just kept thinking I would rather spend more time with father and son or the mom or like then mm-hmm. we didn't need her character yeah like she's obviously become a sort of force to be reckoned with on the big and small screen so i understand having her in that role might add more eyes to watch the movie but yeah it's the weakest part and it's kind of and you know like initially the sort of uh missing persons report is that a little girl is missing yeah and not uh sort of that so that sort of becomes a sort of series of miscommunication like because like a couple of the inspiration movies has does more of that sort of chase effectively in my opinion but yes i agree that the sort of uh the sort of uh beats that it wanted to follow just seemed weak weakened by the script because i don't think the script ever wanted it to sort of go into somebody's a bad guy somebody's somebody's we don't know if they're bad or good or something like that and it kind of it you kind of have to sort of more project the idea of it of and our character actress than necessarily the sort of wealth of that role because the role is i would agree kind of nothing in that case yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely the script to me that that hinders the film from being as good as it could be. But that said, as far as you know, the, as far as a predictable script goes, and I mean predictable, I guess in sense of the narrative arcs, not necessarily what's therein. But you know, with that said, it's very well done. Like it's a very well executed film. It's a beautiful film to look at. Yeah. Um, there's this kind of western score that kind of hums underneath a good chunk of the film a pretty traditional western sounding score and um and i yeah i was really i was really impressed i guess i'm assuming this is her first i mean i don't know if it's her first feature as a filmmaker but it's certainly her first film of this size Mm -hmm. and i i thought i thought she did a fantastic job with it uh i i i thought you know other than the issues i had with the script you know directorially i think it was 
really cohesive and flowed really nicely and it's not an overly long movie which is something i appreciate mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah i was actually like uh like sometimes you see fast movies like indie movies and it's just like they probably either put all their money on having a good soundtrack or scoring that actor to head their movie because it otherwise just looks like crap. This one is different. This actually does look very beautiful, very evocative of sort of the wilderness settings that they're in. So I was very impressed by how it looked visually. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to shout out a a character actor who's in this film who I've been a big fan of for a while, Gary Farmer, who sort Mm -hmm. of plays uh, Steve Zahn's friend. But he's a lot of folks know him from Dead Man and Ghost Dog and Smoke Signals and um, just a just a fantastic, fantastic. uh, uh, I believe he's uh, he's a Canadian actor, but I I believe he's Aboriginal and uh, just a fantastic actor. Um, Yeah. And and he's got a small role, but. it's a very well cast ensemble because you get Chris Coy, you get all sorts of folks, and it, it's really well put together. Um, and it is available uh, starting February twelfth. Um, mm-hmm. You can get it on VOD, and folks can check it out and see if they agree with anything we said. Um, yeah, and I, I, I do think like, like, obviously, like I came out in my twenties, so don't necessarily have a sort of direct connection to being a trans youth with this movie, but I think maybe this movie could be good for parents of trans youth and trans youth themselves, because while it obviously can uh, get a little uh, dramatic at times due to the nature of Steve Zahn's character, I think it's probably good for families of trans kids. Maybe it can help you be one of those parents who doesn't have to rush back to the store to buy all the cowboy toys. Just get them when they ask for it. <laughs> yeah. Just get the damn slingshot when they ask for the slingshot. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so, again, this is available February 12th on VOD uh, from Samuel Goldwyn. Uh, if you agree or disagree with anything we've just said, uh, you know, you can always email or tweet about it because uh, that's the way people express themselves these days. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, we're, I'm going to take a quick break with a word from our sponsor, and then we're going to come back and talk about the films that we believe inspired cowboys. Now's the time when Caden and I curate for you your very own movie mixtape inspired by the film we just discussed, <clears throat> Cowboys. These are films we believe could have, should have, or did inspire the film, and no one knows we're right except for the filmmakers. So I'm curious, were there just a lot of films that popped into your head when you were coming up with your list? Like, I thought about doing a little more trans, but that, but some of them were just more in the exploitation ring of things. Like, um, I do want to shout out uh, this movie because my friend Evan, uh, Evan Purnell uh, did... Uh, actually did the audio commentary on this. Uh, it's going out by Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, it's called Sometimes Aunt Marfa Does Does Dreadful Things. Uh, and it's sort of about how this sort of couple, a gay couple, but one of them's a cross-dresser, and a lot of sort of the confusion there is that 
he goes in and out of cross-dressing to basically do crimes <laughs> but <laughs> it, it this it's so it's uh so off topic top topic as far as what this movie wants to succeed in while that movie is kind of this very sort of curio film but it's on vinegar syndrome and again i hope i got that title right sometimes and what's that title again yep sometimes aunt marford does dreadful things and <laughs> it's again uh it's by thomas casey who never directed a film ever again after that but it's it's it has its blu-ray on under vinegar syndrome so it's definitely worth checking out as a sort of florida-based exploitation movie with sort of a trans cross-dressing element in it well that sounds like a good honorable mention yeah um yeah anything that takes place in did you say florida yeah it's florida it's kind of that sort of uh crucial gordon lewis dorish wishman kind of uh sunshine state exploitation movie going on in it that sounds glorious (laughs) yeah yeah it i think it was on um turner classic movies tcm underground uh once and that's where i actually sort of first fell in love with it and then i found out my friend evan is actually obsessed with that movie so (laughs) yeah um i had a pretty i wouldn't say easy time coming up with topics but i i generally just jot down titles as i watch i rewatched mm-hmm. cowboys and when mm-hmm. i was rewatching it i just jotted down all these different titles and um i was surprised at the titles i was jotting down how many of them were not trans titles uh they were just other films that kind of inspired my brain when i was watching it yeah because it's a lot of sort of the classic story of there sort of being a chase a sort of uh uh, father and child sort of going off the beaten path of yeah. sort of what is considered normal life. So I do, I do, I definitely think there's been recent ones and sort of even just classic sort of Hollywood ones that yeah. kind of fit into that. Well, I'm going to kick us off um, with a film that popped into my head while I was watching this. And it does fit into what you just described, which it, ha- it deals with um, a, a young boy and a man even though the man is not his father, but is certainly a father figure. Uh, it's a film that I think is is actually pretty underrated. It's from 1993. It's directed by Clint Eastwood. It is A Perfect World. Yeah, that was on my list. <laughs> <laughs> you said something earlier that made me think, did he put A Perfect World on his list? <laughs> um, yeah, A Perfect World, it, it's set in 1963 in Texas. It's about uh, Kevin Costner's character, Butch Haynes, who is a criminal and who mm-hmm. ends up uh, taking this young boy as his, you know, hostage slash stowaway. Um, and, you know, they end up developing a, a pretty unique relationship. And uh, all the while they're being pursued by this sort of dogged uh, police officer played by Clint Eastwood. And... Um, you know, I, I was a big fan of this film when I was a kid, and I've watched it pretty somewhat regularly over the years, and I think it really holds up. I think it's yeah. one of Clint Eastwood's best films, especially of the last, you know, of his sort of latter half post-Unforgiven part of his career. <clears throat> and um, I just think it's a really effective, really well-made film. I think it's a career best for performance from Kevin Costner, and uh, just a really enjoyable film. Yeah, uh 
So I obviously did like him myself because it was also on my original list. Don't worry. I also did have a backup in mind just Good. in case this Good. happened. Um, but yeah, I really love that movie because uh, um, the kids like from a very sort of sheltered, fatherless, Jehovah's Witness family. So I think it kind of gets into having sort of father figures and sort of connecting on a level that society doesn't necessarily deem as great because obviously Costner's character is an ex-con who escapes, but he's clearly like clearly early on, like he and another guy escape, but that guy is like a total creep and basically probably deserved to stay behind bars in that case. While Costner is considered the much better man in this case. And, you know, he really connects with the kid and you get very invested in the time together in which they grow into this sort of father-son relationship. And it's definitely one of, I think, easily one of Kevin Costner's best performances. Like, uh, like for people who don't watch him in those sports movies, I think this is kind of the perfect movie to sort of get Kevin Costner as an actor in screen presence. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And, um... Yeah, Kevin Costner has all these different ranges, or not ranges is not the right word. He has all these different modes on film, and uh, this to me is the most is the purest distillation, like you said, of Kevin Costner. And he he made another film. He made a film this past year uh, called I think called Let Me Go or Let Him Go. Uh, yeah, Let Him Go. Yeah, yeah, with Diane Lane, which I I don't I don't think is a great film, but I think he is. That's also. Kevin Costner in that film. That's a very mm -hmm. similar Kevin Costner to you get here. And it's my favorite kind to watch, honestly. Like, look, I love Kevin Costner kicking down the door and, you know, and kissing Joan Allen and upside of anger. But <laughs> that's not the natural state of Kevin Costner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's like, like, I tried to explain, like, because one of my friends who's, like, gay doesn't get Kevin Costner. And... This is kind of, might be a rude sort of description of him, but it's like he's kind of like the jock in high school who's straight and who gets to play the male lead in the play, in the school play. <laughs> but but he's so good at it. Like I respect him for it. Like I think he's uh, great in Bull Durham and all those sports movies, sports movies because he can also be very sensitive too. Like Field of Dreams makes all men cry for a reason. And, but to me, this is like very sort of a classic kind of Hollywood Paul Newman type of role that I think he was perfect for, but for whatever reason, that isn't the role he was put in for, for all those years that I don't get because he's so good in this type of role. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad that we both had a film, even though you're, you're going to go with a replacement. It's nice to know that I at least had some, there was some similarity there on the list um but yeah that was my first choice is a perfect world what is your first choice um my choice is a steven spielberg movie one of the last movies he made before he made that little that little scrappy film called jaws which is uh the sugarland express <clears throat> and this movie is it's kind of 
in parlance with another sort of movie he made called Duel, which is a very kind of minimalist, very sort of bare bone sort of idea of a man being chased by a guy in a truck. But this one is more about parents played by uh, William Atherton and Goldie Hawn, who want to basically get their child back and them trying to uh, get their little child, their little son back, becomes this sort of media sensation in Texas, where it becomes a huge chase with them basically uh, running on fumes, literally, to try to get what they want. And it's a kind of, in many ways, you could... You could think if Spielberg made this, like even now, he probably would crank up the sort of emotional emotional stakes to the nth. But what's fascinating here is, like I would say, before Jaws or even before like Spielberg kind of got a reputation being a guy who wore his heart on his sleeves, who was a bleeding heart, there's actually this kind of fascinating ambivalence he does have here. And, but when he pulls the sort of emotional punches, they're very powerful. There's actually a shot in this movie that is, that is actually uh, one of my favorite shots in any Spielberg movie. And it's when uh, the couple are in a drive-in and they're actually watching a kind of Warner Brothers short, which is Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. There's, <clears throat> you don't see the screen, but you see the sort of reflection on the hood of the car or on the windshield of the car. And you sort of see William Atherton kind of absorbing the fact that he, that him and his wife are in a Wiley Coyote Roadrunner situation. There's going to be an ending there that is not going to be great. And it's, and the sort of look on his face is just a sort of slow deflation of him sort of realizing that this is probably not going to end well for them. And again, it's such a good shot, but again, it's not really talked about because <clears throat> I'd say pre Jaws, like people don't really talk enough about uh, Spielberg's work because in many ways it doesn't fall into the sort of easy to make sort of uh, discourses around him. The sort of idea that Jaws ruined as a blockbuster ruined the sort of 70s movies movies that were coming out forever even though I don't think the public necessarily wanted to necessarily have unhappy endings in all of their movies at a certain point they all sort of reached uh their threshold on that but i would say sugarland express kind of has that has that dna in a lot of spielberg movies after the fact like the sort of idea of being chased or trying to reconnect with family whether it's in something like E.T. or Close Encounters or any other movies after after that. I think uh, the movie of sort of <clears throat> dealing with the fact that in many ways these 
this couple is trying to restore their idea of family, but it's not really, <clears throat> but they're not really seen as respectable people by, by polite society. And I think that's a very sort of fascinating sort of tension in the movie. And of course, because it's a Hollywood film, uh, there is a lot of sort of grandeur and a lot of sort of attention paid to the whole chase and the whole sort of media attention that it gets within the movie. Uh, ben Johnson, uh, the sort of great actor in those uh, John Wayne movies who later won an Oscar for The Last Picture Show, plays the sort of head law enforcement person. And he's kind of this sort of symbol of authority, but also of somebody from the past. And you see that kind of negotiation and conversation of old Hollywood and new Hollywood within the movie. And it's kind of weird because <clears throat> it's one of the first dramatic roles Goldie Hawn was in. Like, this was before Shampoo. But uh, it did get good reviews. And it was actually the movie in which Pauline Kael in her review actually thought that this Spielberg kid, because he was, like, only 26 or something like that when he made this movie, is, like, she declared him, like, somebody who reminded her of Howard Hawks. So this was considered a movie that I think made something like Jaws and Close Encounters possible. But it's not really talked about, strangely enough, in my mind. But I actually do think this is a good movie just to watch in general. But I also think as far as its connections to Cowboys, it's sort of about how uh, just in the sort of... Uh, most straightforward thing I would say is like imperfect parents trying to reconnect and be seen as a sort of stable force for a child, even though they are shown as not being the most stable in that case. Yeah, uh, this is a great choice. This is weirdly not one that popped into my head, even though I do love this film. I actually... Only a few months ago, I did a triple. I did a triple feature here at home. I watched uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Badlands, and Sugarland Express. So oh, I was wow. just that's I was great. Go that's a great triple. Yeah, and I, I love this film. I think I think you're right. I don't think this is discussed enough when people talk about Spielberg. I don't think his early work in general is talked enough uh, talked about enough. I actually recently had a friend come over, and uh, and without you know without showing them, I didn't show him the credits. I didn't tell them who made the movie. I just showed them Duel. Oh, and wow. uh, and then afterwards we talked about it. And I was like, oh, by the way, Steven Spielberg directed that. And uh, they were very, very surprised. And um, I, I, think, I think his early work to me is so unique. And so, I mean, it's all sort of like giving him obviously the experience he would need to, you know, become what he eventually became. But it's fun watching those earlier films and seeing all those little Spielberg sparks in there in different ways, and and yeah. a lot of that, you know, <laughs> and, and just the way he just the way he shoots films, the way he builds his characters, it's all there. If you're, it, it's all still there in those early films. He just hasn't mastered it the way he did. And I, I'm assuming, yeah, I mean, obviously he would go on to do Jaws after this, and that sort of you know changed the landscape. But um. This film will always, you know, this has always been one of my, like, sort of 
if, if I'm telling people to watch Spielberg films, I'll, I'll go to this film a lot because I think it is one that people are less familiar with and one that I think deserves more eyes on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, like, like obviously Duel as well. Heck, I even would throw in that Columbo episode <laughs> that he made that he made as a worthwhile sort of Spielberg entry to check out for people who only sort of see him as the blockbusters. Like he can do, he can do. Well, he was capable of doing a lot of sort of great sort of things on not and not necessarily in the sort of um framework that people are now more accustomed to with him yeah yeah this was a great this was a great choice good good job with the first choice <laughs> thank you <laughs> we, we've uh, uh that's nice uh my next one is uh maybe a little more maybe a little more obvious i don't know um it was the first sort of uh trans trans related film that i thought of uh when i was doing my list and um it's a film i have not seen i was programming for an lgbtq film festival the year it came out and uh and we programmed it i haven't seen it since then but it certainly left an impact and this filmmaker has gone on to sort of be huge so it's from 2011 uh it is a uh french film directed by and written by celine skiyama tomboy okay Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, Celine Sciamma, you know, has of course gone on to do portrait of a lady on fire, uh, which, you know, was just immensely huge. And, you know, but I, I've, I've been watching her stuff since water lilies, which was another film that I programmed. And, um, I think she is a really thoughtful filmmaker, even <laughs> sometimes when her films, her films can sometimes be problematic for me, but I, I don't doubt her thoughtfulness and her care that she puts into it. And tomboy is about, a 10 year old uh, who uh, moves to who's in Paris and um, basically pretends to be a little boy uh, or p posits as a little boy um, in her neighbor to play with this group of kids in the neighborhood. And um, you know, it, it's kind of predictable where it goes in the sense, like, you know, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, they're going to find out, you know, there's going to be some sort of repercussion <laughs> with the parents. And, um, but what I think this film really does well is it sort of captures that sort of youthful energy and this, you know, unyielding desire to fit in and to feel like you're part of a community, particularly if you're a new kid in a new area and you're desperate for friends or you're desperate to fit in. And um, and I think the film, you know, I think the film goes in some really interesting directions, even if it is a little predictable. Um, and, you know, I think the ending, I think it has a really beautiful ending which I won't spoil because I know a lot of people have not seen this film. And, um, but yeah, I, this is a film I, I think about all the time. I just haven't rewatched it in a very long time that actually may, maybe I'll rewatch it today. Um, but I, I, I remember, I remember being pretty impacted by this film when we came out and this was, I believe the year that 2011, I believe this was, I think this was the first film that I programmed for the festival. I believe that year it was the first one that was submitted that I was like, Oh yeah. This is it. I had no idea that, of course, Celine Sciamma would go on to do something like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but I knew she was a pretty amazing filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, this was actually the first movie I was sort of aware about being directed by her. Like, it's kind of funny because the first time I actually became aware of her was due to the fact that uh, Adele Hanel had won a Cesar Award 
and there was like talk that she was probably the first out lesbian went in and then there's like oh yeah she's uh dating uh, a director uh this director of hers I'm like ooh, interesting and it actually took me a couple of years to realize the connection it's like oh that uh girlfriend of Adele Hanel and um yeah it's actually been a while since I've watched this and I do wonder wonder uh, the mental place I was because I was still closeted at the time this was out so I am curious to sort of return to it and if I will have a different response because I remember being more or less fine with the movie but kind of annoyed with how it was covered and written about and you know sometimes with the way a film is written about that sometimes we have a reaction that's negative against the film when the film cannot help with how it gets written or covered necessarily so i am curious to revisit it yeah there there there's some really striking scenes in this there's a really difficult scene at, towards the end of the film where you know the little there's a little girl i, I won't spoil too much but there's a little girl uh named lisa that that the character's friends with and uh basically the the boy the neighborhood boys have revealed that uh that michael's actually laura and um and the Lisa character looks in Michael's shorts and it's just a really like, it's a really difficult and like really, I don't know. It's just a really emotionally <laughs> wrecking scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember being very wrecked by that scene. And um, I, I'm curious to see if all of that still holds up now, you know, almost or now 10 years later, since we're mm -hmm. on the 10th anniversary. I'm curious as well. So maybe that's what I'll watch today is tomboy. Yeah. Um, so I actually, this is uh, a trans film, although like I think it, even though it's technically it was popular the moment it came out and got even earned an Oscar, that it's actually taken a while for this to be sort of uh, widely embraced as trans canon, and that's a Sydney Lamette's Dog Day Afternoon. Yes. And I put this into a well, well-intentioned but not really thought-out planning <laughs> by a cis male character, and that would describe Al Pacino's character in this, um, because this is based on a true story, and it was very fun researching, doing just general research and finding that the real-life couple in this movie, from this movie, which was the bank robber. Uh, John and uh, Elizabeth, the trans woman who he was stating he was robbing the bank to pay for her surgery. Uh, I actually found the original uh, magazine in which they had their wedding photos in. <laughs> and then there were a lot of follow-ups to that. Um, unfortunately, due to the media attention, uh, uh, the real-life woman got kicked out of her apartment when uh, her landlord found out she was trans. And unfortunately, that couple did not last. It kind of only became a very sort of unrequited love with uh, the real life man uh, being very enamored with her where she had more or less moved on. Nonetheless, though, Dog Day Afternoon is still one hell of a movie, even with the whole issue of the fact that Chris Sarandon as a trans woman 
is not really something I desire <laughs> to watch or approve of necessarily, especially when he's in a five o'clock shadow and the real life woman actually had at that point had some work done that made her look a lot more feminine than most certainly Chris Sarandon was at that time. But still, I think it's a really great, wonderful movie. <clears throat> and it's kind of mind-blowing to me that uh, something that involved a story like that was something where a director as popular as Sidney Lamette and a star as as uh, respected as Al Pacino would just dive into this movie and completely and completely own the fact that this was a major part of this character who was in love with a trans woman had had this unofficial wedding with this trans woman and was robbing the bank in part to pay for their surgery. It's kind of mind blowing, but even as a piece of cinema, it's it's perfect as far as script tension. These you have a John Cazale as the sort of right hand man who is this kind of dumb but heartbreaking in a way that's kind of dumb, but he's still like the supportive of his best friends friends and you have all these side characters pop up that are just that just make you think of 70s new york it's great movie yeah i i love this film um and uh <laughs> yeah sydney lumet i think you know obviously you know this was the 70s where all of these filmmakers were basically just given carte blanche essentially to do whatever the hell they wanted to do and we got some really interesting films out of that and i think he had just come off of i believe murder in the orient express which was a huge hit so I'm sure he had, you know, maybe even more carte blanche at the time to sort of do what he wanted. And it's so fascinating, like you said, that he chose Dog Day Afternoon as sort of, you know, at the time, one of probably the two or three biggest filmmakers in the country. Mm -hmm. um, he chose such a sort of unusual film to tackle. And, um, you know, I, I, I like this one for a lot of reasons. I, I think it's I think it's such a tight script. And Frank yeah. Pearson, who also directed one of my favorite films, Cool Hand Luke, wrote the screenplay for the film. And um, and everything about this film just works from a technical angle. I think it's shot gorgeously. I think the editing is fantastic. And um, not only the fact that this got made, but the fact that this film was as big of a hit as it was in 1970. Yeah, yeah it's one of those things where it's just like – how was this movie popular? Like there are all those movies where you look back as like, how was it popular? And this is definitely one of those movies. Yeah. And like you said, yes, I, I don't know that I need Chris Sarandon looking the way he looks in this movie, but I will take Chris Sarandon looking the way he looks in Fright Night any day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be clear though, like this movie is really invested in that relationship in a way like, the cops, the cops kind of scoff at this whole notion, but then when you hear them on the telephone together, and it's like, oh yeah, this is an actual real couple, couple with all of these concerns, anxieties, anxieties. Like, like a wife, like his wife appears with the kids, but it's just sort of like, yeah, that's actually, she's like unfortunately kind of cast off 
cast off and he doesn't really care about her as much as much he's actually really invested in, in this one person who is trans and they actually have this real relationship so i will give the movie credit for basically ha- for basically making the primary focus on this on uh this character be about him and his uh trans uh companion yeah yeah this was this was not a film that popped into my head but it's a great choice uh hey you're two for two thank you Uh, two for two um that's gonna take me into my final choice which um this to me is probably the most of an outlier of the films that i chose this to me this to me popped into my head because it is also a film about a child trying to escape a, a difficult home life. And in, in Cowboys, you know, that difficult home life is a mother who doesn't seem to be willing to, to understand or accept. And in this film, it is a home life because it is a parent who is being pretty violently abusive. And so this is a film, this to me is one of the most fascinating films ever made in terms of its trajectory as a film. It's a film that I deeply love, even though when it came out, people just bashed the hell out of it. It's from 1992, and it's Richard Donner's Radio Flyer. I feel like I've seen this movie, like it used to play like, it used to play on like one of the cable channels, but I can't say I necessarily have recall of the movie itself but that title is familiar to me. yeah so this was a film uh this film was written by david mickey evans who most people know as the writer director of the sandlot and it was in the early 90s or the late 80s rather there was a huge bidding war over this script like everybody wanted it everybody was going for it and it ended up it ended up getting made um and there were some other issues too i think there was a director swap and all sorts of things there were a lot of production issues with this film but it is essentially – it's a film about um, two brothers, uh, Mike and Bobby, played by Elijah Wood and Joseph Mazzello. And they move with their mom, um, at, who's played by Lorraine Bracco. And um, it's 1969, and uh, their father leaves them. And so they move uh, sort of across the country, and um, she falls in love. Their mom falls in love with this character that's only referred to really as the king. And they end up moving to this house together, this suburban house, and almost immediately you start seeing that this character of the king is violent. And he starts being abusive, mostly to the youngest kid played by Joseph Mazzello. And um, th- there's a lot of like magical realism in this film. Like there's there, they, they stop by this uh, sort of uh, roadside attraction on their way out there, and they, they get to see this buffalo who later comes to the Elijah Wood character in his dreams and starts talking to him and telling him what he needs to help his little brother do. And the whole movie is about them sort of trying to build this, what they call their, it's the radio flyer. They're trying to turn it into this uh, sort of craft that Bobby can use to sort of fly away from the abuse. And it's I, I find this film to be so beautiful and so captivating in the way that it it sort of depicts sort of childhood fantasy and the way that children deal with trauma. And, um, and, and yeah, you have to suspend your disbelief for most of this movie. This is not a realistic film. I mean, this is about kids turning a radio flyer wagon into basically an airplane of sorts <laughs> that they can then use to fly away. 
And but I think there's so much beauty in that and simplicity in that, and I think it's handled really well. And when it came out, it was so bashed and so trashed, and people just thought that tonally it didn't work. And I, I just think that's that's not true at all. And I, I will say, you know, they added this sort of wraparound with the Tom Hanks character who who opens and closes the film as sort of a narrator playing the <laughs> older Elijah Wood, kind of telling his children what happened. I don't know that that's necessarily needed. I think that was just sort of added on. But <laughs> I, I think what's there is really special. It's a film that I love and I recommend to people all the time. Yeah, because I feel now that like you mentioned, like who played the little boys, I I think I might have seen a little bit of it in brief. Uh, Elijah Wood and Joseph Mazzello, like those were kind of like the go-to child actors at that point. But yeah, I'm always curious about um, revisiting like stuff from like the late '80s, early '90s, as far as like studio movies that were kind of pitched as about being about children but might have not necessarily be the sort of ideal studio movies for children in a way so yeah that that movie that does sound fascinating yeah and that and, and it just occurred to me what it was is like david mickey evans who wrote the script was also on board as the director and mm-hmm he was the budget just kept rising and rising and Mm -hmm. so finally uh michael douglas who produced the film shut the production down fired the director and then brought on richard donner to finish it out and you know the film ended up costing 35 million dollars to make so it's not like it really helped it at all it cost 35 million it made like four million but then like david mickey evans almost immediately after was like okay i'll show you and went on to direct and write and direct the sandlot so (laughs) He, he got the last laugh. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's my final choice. And we are now over to your final choice. So my final choice is actually another uh, trans film. And it's called uh, By Hook or By Crook. Uh, starring uh, and starring, co-starring and co-directed and co-written by two trans men, Harry Dodge and Silas Howard. Uh, Silas Howard has gone on to direct a bunch of features, uh, some shorts. Uh, he's also uh, directed episodes of Pose. And uh, Harry Dodge is probably known by a lot of people as uh, the husband of Maggie Nelson, the author. Uh, he's featured prominently in her book, The Argonauts. He's also a short experimental filmmaker himself and has also written a very awesome book called My Meteorite, which I do recommend as far as people who want a trans memoir that isn't the sort of, at this point, sort of tropish stories about transition. This one is a lot more experimental and definitely worth reading. But uh, this movie is about uh, two sort of trans men who are kind of seen as common criminals, uh, but they kind of find each other in ways that are kind of subliminal, and they sort of find this connection, and they kind of go on a kind of road trip kind of sort of movie. 
and I really and I really love the whole idea of a sort of trans buddy movie because so often trans movies can or a movie about a trans person can often feature that one trans person as the only trans person in that film's universe. So it's always kind of a relief to see more than one in a movie, let alone uh, when they are basically the leads of the movie. Like, there are cis people in the movie, obviously, but it's kind of, like, it's even expressed in the movie. It's so great that they finally have somebody to talk about their experiences uh, who and who completely understand it, that they don't have to go through this explanation of who they are. It's very much in the sort of parlance of new queer cinema. It was made in 2001, but I would say it was taking a while for trans stories, even when new queer cinema was rising, to sort of embrace trans narratives. Like, obviously, you had the Greg Arakis, the Todd Haynes of the world that were sort of breaking through, or at least were getting a lot of indie cred. But uh, it was still rare to see trans filmmakers trans filmmakers sort of land in those spots but this one even though i would say people thought new queer cinema was pretty much done after the 90s this one was sort of this movie that i think should be more widely known uh harry dodge actually on his vimeo page actually has this movie in full for people it's very low budget but it's i definitely it's definitely one of my favorite movies about trans masculinity. Yeah, this is this is also is a film I thought about. Um, I haven't seen it in a very long time, um, but I, I do agree with everything you just said. And I, I, I did think about the film as an option, but ended up not going with it. So I'm glad that you did. Um, and let's also say that it also features Joan Jett. Oh, yeah, she's in it. She's in it, too. So thank you, Joan Jett, for supporting trans masculine stories. A- absolutely, and uh, so yeah, I, I I know it. I know it premiered at Sundance, and then 2001 was still like there just weren't a lot of avenues for a film like this to get a release in the early 2000s. I mean, you have like you had like the niche distributors like Strand and mm-hmm. Wolf and folks like that. But there just wasn't a lot of, but even even then, those weren't really hitting the mainstream in a substantive way. Yeah, and it 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 would get like additional life at uh, other LGBT uh, festivals across the country. <laughs> even like in retrospect, some of them are kind of cringeworthy because it was accepted at lesbian film festivals too. <laughs> even though I would say, even though both of these guys were are now identify as trans masculine. Uh, they would probably be more in the sort of non-binary space at that time, but still, uh, it was a it was tough for a film like that to sort of uh, gain <clears throat> the type of prominence that maybe other uh, indie movies that premiered at Sundance did at the time, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one that I I I, I would I would guess to say a lot of folks haven't seen. It is definitely one to check out because it's not one even today that I hear a lot about when I'm discussing yeah. like trans films with people. I don't hear by hook or by crook mentioned very much. Yeah, and it's kind of upsetting because obviously it's by trans filmmakers and starring trans filmmakers. But like um, one thing in this research is even something that might have played at Sundance or might have had 
made it around international film festivals, a lot of those fall through the cracks. Like there was actually, now this was a long time ago, but there was actually this movie called Mascara that played at Cannes, actually featured two prominent trans women, uh, Eva St. Robans and uh, Romy Hogg, who were, Romy Hogg was actually a big uh, major uh, trans person in Germany. Like she was like, she dated David Bowie and all that, but I had never heard of this. And it was actually kind of a bummer to sort of find out that it, again, not something that the trans community necessarily embraces because it can sometimes feel like, again, we're being propped up as something either for derision or to sort of score any sort of cultural points or something like that. But there are, there are many examples of trans movies that just fall through the cracks like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. And so I, I think uh, that's why your book coming out will be very helpful for folks. Yeah. And I really hope, and uh, like I did have a piece in criterion that sort of went through sort of how uh, digital digitized democratized archives are essential, especially with trying to find the histories of not just how trans people live, but how they reacted to sort of seeing their worlds or versions of their worlds uh, portrayed by media. Because I always felt like there was always a sense that they were reacting in real time to how they were being covered. It's just that uh, the mainstream media at that point didn't really either take that into account or they just didn't care. But it's fascinating to sort of see and looking at a lot of archives like the Digital Transgender Archive, which again, people can look up and go to town on any sort of points they want to sort of study or research. Uh, it's great to sort of have that at your disposal if you are just new to trans history or want to learn more. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um... Well, what a list we've come up with. Uh, this is our so basically our movie mixtapes are designed for people who have fifteen hours to kill and just want to watch everything back to back. And so for those uh, poor unfortunate souls out there, they would be watching Cowboys, A Perfect World, The Sugarland Express, Tomboy, Dog Day Afternoon, Radio Flyer, and By Hook or By Crook. Mm -hmm. What a lineup! <laughs> Truly a lineup. It it really. It basically moves back and forth like a pinball. <laughs> it, it, it really does. Um, and then, you know, and if you want to do a little honorable mission on there, you can throw in sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things. Yep. And um, I think Leave No Trace came up in a lot of the reviews as a point of comparison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that, that's probably an easy one that people can make as a connection. Definitely worth seeing as also a piece of good cinema as well. Another film that popped into my head was uh, Infinitely Polar Bear, the Mark the Mark Ruffalo film, only because it deals with a, a father and child relationship, and he's dealing with some sort of mental illness, and so yeah. um, so I, that that was another one that popped in my head. It just wasn't quite you know on on track with that with Cowboys, so I didn't I didn't include that one. But I think that's a great list of films for folks to watch. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'd certainly enjoy that uh, mini marathon. Um, 
but yeah, so uh, so tell me, uh, where can folks can folks find you online anywhere? Where can they find you and your work? Okay, so I'm off Twitter, and I made that sort of executive decision at some point in 2020 because <laughs> I'm like, because I just found pandemic mixed with election year to be very draining. Yeah, but I should be available by the time this episode pops up on Instagram under. Uh, corpses, fools, and monsters. I'm taking a brief break on there, but I should be back by the time this episode drops. And that is where you can reach me. Uh, you can probably see me pop up in fine lines from the places you mentioned in the future, like Reverse Shot and Movie. But yeah, Instagram's usually my way to go because I always like using a visual component with my research and what I want like to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, some little housekeeping on our part. Uh, dropping uh, this Friday the 12th is our discussion of the new film Little Fish with Screen Draft co-host Clay Keller. And for that episode, we're including a special interview with the film's director, Chad Hartigan, who wrote and directed This is Martin Bonner and Morris from America, both very good films. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed quite a lot. Um, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that's just what you do. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for being here, Caden. Yep. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this, uh, discussion about the movies and also the movies that we, uh, brought, uh, as recommendations. We've done a good service for the people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, now it's time for a little something that we like to call Southern Hospitality. It's time for me to comment on a debate that has been raging for the past few years. A debate that has rocked the cinematic world as we know it and created irreparable fissures all across this great land of ours. I had wanted to stay out of this controversy, keep my nose clean, as it were, and go about my life confidently hovering somewhere in the middle as not to choose sides and set myself up for a potential backlash. Yet here we are. I can keep silent no longer. My conscience guides me. And I must... Finally, and at long last, stake my claim in the ongoing turmoil that is. Team Chalamet or Team Hedges? Let's examine. After minor roles in Men, Women, and Children and Interstellar, Timothy Chalamet burst onto the scene with his 2016 indie film Miss Stevens, followed closely the next year with roles in Lady Bird, Call Me By Your Name, and Hostiles. To say that 2017 was the year of Chalamet would be an understatement. How many girls went to bed that year with visions of Timothy Chalamet dancing in their heads? How many boys went to bed fucking a peach? Since then, his results have been mixed. He starred in a Woody Allen film, was miscast in a film about Henry V, and finally shown again in Greta Gerwig's Little Women, basically playing a manic pixie dream girl in every sense of the word. There was another film in which he starred, but we'll get to that a bit later. But in terms of zeitgeist relevance, point Chalamet. As for Lucas Hedges, after minor roles in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom and the Grand Budapest Hotel, he also broke out in 2016 with Manchester by the Sea, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. The next year, like Chalamet, he broke out even more with Lady Bird and Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. He was just so sweet and so serious 
We just wanted to sing him to sleep. His track record since has been more stable, with roles in Boy Erased, Mid-90s, Honey Boy, Waves, and Let Them All Talk. He even starred on Broadway in Kenneth Lonergan's revival of The Waverly Gallery. So just in terms of consistent quality, I have to say, point hedges. Now the best way to compare the two actors is via the film they starred in together, Lady Bird, and the films they both released in 2018 about drug addiction. As for Lady Bird, Chalamet certainly gets the more memorable role and does a better job of sliding into the skin of his character, more so than Hedges, who's really just playing a version of himself. But it's when they tackle drug addiction where the differences really show. In Beautiful Boy, Chalamet is playing to the nines, sometimes histrionic, sometimes too much of a sad puppy dog. And that isn't helped by a miscast Steve Carell. Whereas in Ben is Back, Hedges is going for more subtlety and nuance, creating someone who seems like a real character. You don't see the gears working the same way they do with Chalamet. So, another point, Hedges. But then there's that extra something. That spark. That poppy seed caught in your teeth. Some folks call it the it factor. Chalamet has that. Maybe it's his energy, or his youthful exuberance, or maybe it's the fact that he dresses like he's an alien who just landed on Earth and doesn't know what clothes do. Chalamet definitely seems like the type of person you'd go out for on a night out and wake up in another city with complete strangers wondering what the fuck happened because you don't party in Boston. Hedges, on the other hand, seems like the type who'd cook you a delicious fancy dinner by himself and then engage in hours-long conversations about literature. So it really just depends on what you're in the mood for on a Tuesday night. I say, point Chalamet. Now we get to the tricky part. And please bear with me, because I love Timothy Chalamet. And I love Lucas Hedges. But I'm going to call an audible and say, I'm on neither Team Chalamet nor Team Hedges. I denounce them both as pretenders to the throne and plant my flag firmly on the side of the field reserved for Team Holland. Tom Holland got his start as one of the Billy Elliots in the original London production of the musical and broke out earlier than the others in 2012's The Impossible and has been delivering quality performances ever since in In the Heart of the Sea, The Lost City of Z, The Current War, The Devil All the Time, not to mention his turn as the definitive Peter Parker in the Spider-Man films and subsequent Marvel pictures. And he's even got his own drug addiction movie coming out, Cherry, directed by the Russo brothers. Holland is of the same class of actors as Chalamet and Hedges, and I'd argue he's done broader, more interesting work, takes more risks as an actor, and is just so charming you want to pinch his cheeks so hard they just pop off. So he gets a point in the talent department, the consistency department, the zeitgeist department, and the fun night out department. Anytime I see that Chalamet is doing another film, I think, I'm sure he's going to be very pretty and very intense. Anytime I see that Hedges is doing another film, I think, I'm sure he's going to be very thoughtful and very solid. When I see that Holland has a new film coming out, I think, what the fuck is that going to be? So there we have it. I've made my decision, and I hope I've helped you make yours. Chalamet is great. So is Hedges. But Tom Holland is number one with a bullet from the UK to the US. 
I thought about including Nick Robinson in this discussion, but he's still finding his own. One day soon he might eclipse them all, but right now he's figuring out who and what he is on screen. So we'll come back to that conversation later. And maybe a few years ago we would have included Ansel Elgort before we all found out he was a baby-faced monster mash. Not sure if he's fully cancelled yet, but he's definitely pointless. Phew. I feel better. All that time I stayed on the outskirts of this discussion, too timid and unwilling to join. It's as if an incredible weight has been lifted off my chest. If Chalamet were conveying that, it'd be with a loud, exaggerated exhale. If Hedges were conveying that, it'd be with a head-lowered sigh. If Holland were delivering that, it'd be a quick smile and a scratch of the ear. And that's what it comes down to with these three. But the devil is in the details. Just like it's in Chalamet's hair, Hedges' direct stare, and Holland's nervous system. So pick your sides, put on your gear, and let's get violent. It's a fight to the death. And that's our show. If you like what we're doing here on Movies with Gravy, the fastest, easiest, most awesome way to support us is via Patreon. You can do so at the $1, $5, $10, or $25 level, and you get all sorts of awesome perks, including weekly Patreon-exclusive mini-reviews, special interviews, early access to bonus content, and voting power to choose some of the films we discuss on the show. Visit patreon.com slash movieswithgravy and sign up and help keep us doing what we're having an amazing time doing. That's patreon.com slash movieswithgravy. And make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other folks know you like us. You can follow us across the socials at Movies with Gravy, and we hope you do. Movies with Gravy was conceived of, produced by, and hosted by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and the theme song is Country Roses by Flannery Miles and me, Billy Ray Bruton. And remember, movies are great, but they're better with gravy. Y'all come back now, you hear? Country Roses, blessed songs, mommy's here.